Who are you? <laughs> I can't remember. I'm Reefa. How do I say the bit about it being a thing about what it's about? Okay. Hello, welcome to Refigure, the podcast about oh, the arts. The podcast about that's what it is. I was just doing it. Oh yeah, do it then. Right. Hi, welcome to. Welcome to Refigure, the podcast about arts, culture, tech, and diversity. I'm Reefa. And I'm Christopher. Yay! What's on the show today, Chris? <laughs> Uh, this week we're going to talk about Mark Cousins. Oh, sorry. We're going to talk about Mark Cousins' epic cinema history documentary series "Women Make Film," and we're also going to talk about the new series of Queer Eye, which we've binged. Is it the fifth season? Something like that. Um, and we're also going to uh, talk about a couple of days ago a statue of a slave trader was forcibly removed and thrown in the river in Bristol. So we'll talk about statues. And whether they mean whether, whether lo- they come alive at night, yeah. Whether losing a statue is losing uh, some form of history. How are you, Reefa? How's your week been? I am quite tired. I have to admit, dear listener, it's been a pretty fraught week. It's been pretty lively on the Women of Colour Brighton Facebook group that I, one of the members of and admins of, and uh, yeah, moderating comments has been quite the busy thing I've been doing this week you know so I haven't had much time for culture and uh, doing stuff I've just been righteous on the internet. We've had these few months of being so different from normal and yet it's not even the main news story now. We're what, still COVID? Yeah we've still got we've still got this rampant disease we've still got lives completely changed we've still got a a financial economic situation we don't even know what how bad it's going to be and yet there's just other stuff going on that's taken over and yet we still have time to watch netflix and talk about tv it's amazing isn't it it is amazing how life goes on and how resilient we are and how we get used to things but when things happen how quickly people mobilize and get on the streets and all power to all those people that are risking their lives. I'm so proud of everybody that's doing anything at the moment. I think you're all amazing. It's absolutely incredible, isn't it, really? The scale of it and what it's exposed inside, particularly in the United States, but here as well. Women make film. Most of the recognised so-called movie classics were directed by men. For 13 decades, and on all six filmmaking continents, thousands of women have been directing films too. Some of the best films. What movies did they make? What techniques did they use? What can we learn about cinema from them? So, Mark Cousins did a whole massive, huge series a few years ago called The Story of Film. You don't need to go to film school. You just need to watch hours and hours and hours of these programs where he really is ahead of his time. It reminds me of, it's like John Berger schooling you on art, you know, and the sexism in art and how um, art history and how the world has been constructed around the Western way of looking at things. And the Mark Cousins series is about film and about how we think of Hollywood and about Western way of constructs of of the way that we view cinema, the early days of perspective and special effects and the history of, of cinema, but also looks at different countries like the Middle East and about Jap- Japanese film as well and how that's influenced 
Western uh, directors. That's one thing to watch. And then he's done this new series, OMG, women have been directing, making films for 100 years. More than, I'm not even exaggerating. And nobody's heard of them. And a handful of them are in Hollywood now. And there's Tilda Swinton is um, narrating the first part. But there's lots of other actresses like Jane Fonda. They take aspects of the narration, so they share it. But they also just focus on the amazing bits of the films. They're not talking about films about women. They're just picking films made by women. Each episode is like three hours and there's been three episodes or four episodes so far. And it's not grouped in a kind of chronological way. And as Reva says, it's not... um, it's not designed to tell us all about women making film. What it is, is a history of film. And it tells us about different techniques and different subjects and different styles of filmmaking. It just is that every clip shown is by a woman director. You know what you just said about um, the story of film itself, that it's like a film school. And that's what this is. This is like a film school of brilliant filmmaking and how to how to make films that are vivid and are brilliant stories and shot in interesting ways all of that stuff at the beginning it starts off quite gentle about uh, place and form and location and focus and then later it gets into more saucy bits as well which is interesting itself bodies color all kinds of interesting aspects of film and what i really like is that he splices in he's picked films that you know like point break you know well-known films directed by women but he'll also put in films that have never seen the light of day like Iranian films filmmakers or filmmakers from the 1950s Japan you know it's just such a rich program it's not bingeable I would say because we tried binging it and I started to get a bit like like we had there's a bit about surrealism but surrealist film which I find really tedious and weird with clowns and stuff in it and it's weird but a lot of it is just like the subtleties of filmmaking. It's not an art form that me or Chris really, you know, we've not been trained in it. So the subtle things about shot is sometimes you're watching a film and you don't even know why it's good or what's piqued your interest, you know, why is it different? Because it's global rather than focusing on just on Hollywood, you actually realise that there are different traditions where women filmmaking was quite celebrated. So yes, there are films that have been suppressed, but also films that we haven't heard of but were hit films and really acclaimed in in Behind the Iron Curtain that were made by women. And it was nice to see films that we've talked about on this show as well, like Girlhood we've talked about, um, which is a film about teenage girls in France. I'd forgotten about that film and I just liked the way that he sort of picked aspects of it uh, around the clothes that she wears, so how people transform and how they, you know, use costume and... And films that I'd never seen before, which makes me think, oh, I need to go and see that film. Because you know how sometimes it's been like being in Blockbuster and you're flicking through Netflix like we used to wander around Blockbuster trying to find a film that we need to watch. And then that's why you need these sorts of films to remind you of these incredible scenes. Oh, the other famous one that they refer back to quite a lot in this series, they refer back to is American Psycho. And I don't think I knew it was a female director. Like, what they're trying to say is, look at all these amazing films and these examples of how these films are classics and they just happen to be by women. I think we've said that three times now, (laughs) but I just want to 
Hammer It Home. So that's Women Make Film. It's Mark Cousins' documentary series and it's available on the BFI player. And it's well worth it. I mean, also, the BFI player is actually a fantastic subscription service if you can afford to subscribe. How much is it? It's about five a month or six quid a month. Well, well cheaper than it. Netflix. I've just uh, unsubscribed from Spotify. I'm going to have ads now. Oh. So I can afford That's it. That's going to be rough. Why? Just I hate the ads on Spotify. Just in the last couple of days, partly just to cheer us up, I think, we needed something a little bit more positive. Season three of Queer Eye. Isn't it season five? No, I don't think so. Oh yeah, it's season five. Shall I leave all that in just because I love it no. when you go, no, you're wrong. And then 30 seconds later, oh yeah, you're right. I have struggled with my identity as a gay person. I've actually been teased my entire life for being tall. I'm not sure how to take care of a three-year-old. I always feel inadequate. Someone called 911 because this is a Fab Five Confidence emergency. Actually, we shouldn't do that because we should only use 911 responsibly. Before you get overwhelmed, I have a plan. I think we're going to love it. Okay, what do we got? I like my butt rubbed and my put. Ew! Pause. You know those metal bins that you can like put clothes in and burn them? Do you have one of those? <laughs> These expectations that you're holding on to, they're causing burdens in your life. Would you ever tell that kid they didn't come out soon enough? No. So why do you tell yourself that? I needed to hear that. So, oh, what happened here? Tell us about Queer Eye, Chris. What do you like about it? Well, I hate reality television. I really do. Not and even I, nailed it, don't you like that? I don't like any of it. I mean, there is a harsh, competitive, kind of um, cynical edge to so much reality TV, including... All some, television. Just so much that I can't stand. Which actually leads me to one of my problems with Queer Eye. So I love Queer Eye. It makes me cry so often. We've watched all of the series since the reboot. I love those guys. There is something incredibly good-hearted and honourable about what the show is trying to do. Um, it's moved beyond just saying being gay is okay, look, and it's gone to a whole new place about representation and including people and reminding us that everybody has got all these hopes and dreams and fears and difficulties to get through whatever they look. I mean, it's just a very good-hearted programme and this series, a lot of the people are quite marginalised people who then get the attention of the, the fabulous five. I can't believe I even know. I mean, I like I know their name. I just... Oh. I had to explain it the other day to my sister, who's only just got Netflix. Uh, we are weighted towards Netflix with our, our TV consumption. So let me just explain it, just in case you don't have Netflix. It's a series that used to be on daytime TV, uh, Five Guys. It used to be called Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. And they would go and do a um, makeover for, for a bloke that would happen to be straight and sort of get them out of their shorts and t-shirt and get them into some nice clothes and show them how to groom themselves and wash their hair and shit like that when they rebooted the series i can't believe i have to explain it to someone but it was interesting having to explain it to someone who's got a proper job <laughs> does stuff in the world and she was like so it's a makeover show and i said yeah well now it's not it was like five i mean it still is these five very big personalities where they go and make over their house and teach them how to cook something and they put on a meal and it's really sweet but now it's not just that 
it's got much deeper aspirations. So this series, um, I found it quite moving. I don't know why I found it moving. It, it's just hard. It's just nice to watch something where they're ordinary people and you just sometimes you forget that there are just people going about their daily lives who are struggling because America doesn't have a welfare state in the same way that we have here in this country so people struggle if they lose their job in a way that we just don't feel that in the UK or in the rest of Europe maybe and I like that sort of idea it's a bit Marie Kondo of like changing your environment and helping people go in and like sort their wardrobe out and give them a new some help to like pick out some new clothes and get a proper haircut everybody needs that sometimes especially if then they're in a rut and they haven't they've broken up with someone or they're trying a business or they are estranged from someone in their family they go beyond helping them with their appearance and their lifestyle they try and heal their families you get the sense that it's all very well to have a family that loves you and tells you you're great but to have these five tv stars come in and they are incredibly positive about the person's positive attributes while at the same time challenging them to dig into what it what is at the heart of the problem. When the person gets to the heart of the problem and has their moment of often very tearful difficulty getting through it, they're surrounded by people now that they immediately are able to trust and love, who were who were strangers three days before. But they they have given them so much they've put so much sort of genuine attention and love and cheerleading i mean i keep saying cheerleading but it feels like that like they're constantly saying you're gorgeous you're amazing and the person really feels that no it's it's like the whole show is the group hug that they have with them it is tv and i'm assuming that they're they say that they're doing five days but with that person but i'm assuming there's been a, a a researcher and a team of people that have done stuff around the edges so that they make sure that the that it's maybe a bit performed when they actually do do these reunions the one that really blew us away though and i won't spoil it for you but it was about this poor woman whose boyfriend cheated on her and she had this doggy (laughs) she had this hairdressing salon with a mobile home and her parents were like struggling to help her like anyway what i'm saying is they did a whole big reveal and a fashion show and there were dogs involved and it was really sweet (laughs) and they didn't just you could see her transforming like just with the clothes let alone with like helping her with her business and with the house and with her boyfriend it was the whole package it's like five days intensive what frightens me is how deep i could dive into it so i'm really impressed with that they've addressed the problem that previous series there's a sense that bobby who is the home decoration expert pretty much does all the real big work because what happens is they go and get a haircut with jonathan and someone else usually does the haircut and jonathan just chats to them or they'll have a some form of interaction challenging their deep set problem with caramo and he's doing some kind of basically being like a bit of a psychotherapist and helping them through a problem meanwhile bobby bobby is off off screen not getting any camera time totally redoing their whole house with presumably a team of support they do show the team i know and they're much more i was going to say there's a little bit more you get to see a little bit more the background and behind the scenes now just little hints of it and it's clear that bobby's got this massive team of people and also he's obviously got the budget but it always used to feel like he was a little bit underrepresented in the show, but now he's everywhere. So, like, 
in theory, Bobby's off doing the house, but now suddenly he's in the makeup suite as well, helping out and chatting then. And what they've tried to do is address the problems that different individuals had, like famously Anthony, who's a straight acting, incredibly handsome food expert and restaurateur, except his food is all shite. It's terrible. <laughs> but what they've done is really addressed the way that he was... So he got quite a lot of... Um, criticism from the public in the real world about his people would always slag off his recipes quite rightly because they're always terrible but um by merging all these bits and having them interact more during the week they've made it better however i've got a problem with this series now the language of the internal language of this particular reality show is so familiar to all the people who are going on it that it is really risking becoming pastiche of itself. There is that bit where they're in the car on the way to someone's house and they're going to say, oh, we've got to solve this problem with a person. And then one of them says to Tan, who's the fashion guy, just tuck their shirt in and everything will be all right. Because Tan has become famous for the French tuck, which is this like, you just stick a little bit of your shirt in the front of your trousers and it improves your look. But like, it's so successful that everyone going on it now knows what they're meant to do. They know. I don't think the so. I think they are making fundamental changes. The fact that this Mexican um, family, they want to open a restaurant and they properly kit out the restaurant, right? Yeah, and that true. is still going, that restaurant. That's not fake. That is substantial. It's not like those crappy makeover shows you used to get in the, in the 90s, you know, where... Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen would flounce around someone's house, putting up MDF, you know, and doing yeah, a sort yeah. of staged version of that. Sarah all those, Beanie. Yes, all of those sort of crappy things. You know, <laughs> nobody... That was real crappy reality TV. Anyway, we watched the whole series now, so if you've got problems with it, it's too late. It's really fun. Queer Eye, fifth season, Netflix. Excellent. People transform if you put them in their nice <clears throat> hat. Maybe we save up the statues and talk about that next week when it's not quite so fresh. Whatever. Or do you want to talk about it? No, you want to to talk about statues. No, I'm not bothered about talking about it. I really don't care about that. I'm not interested. It comes to something, if people in this country are more upset about the statues than they are about actual people, so I don't care. Well, no, but no one is, surely. No, apart from some gammons. On the internet. Not not reasonable people. No. you say that, but there are lots of people that think that this is criminal damage and that it's it's part of British heritage and, you know, people who've been brainwashed to think that things are, are important. This maybe makes me think we should talk about well, the carry statue. Carry on, I'm talking I don't, about it. I just don't want to put you into it. If, I'm not. I am just said my bit. Carry on. Well, I agree with you. Awesome. <laughs> I, just, I thought it was beautiful that it came down. It was absolutely beautiful and I didn't care that it came down unofficially with non-violent direct action, because I agree with that. That's totally fine. Give context, because we've got people all around the world that are listening, so you yeah. need to explain what happened this week with the statue. So this week, with the massive Black Lives Matter protests all across the world, let alone the United States, I don't know, what was I going to say? Um, what happened in Bristol? So in yeah. Bristol a couple of days ago, right in the centre of Bristol, it's a very prominent statue. Edward Colston was a mass-murdering slave trader who his name is on lots of things in Bristol 10 years ago there was a petition which thousands of people signed to get rid of it Bristol doesn't want that statue but it's still there and so during these protests a group of protesters took down the statue in a beautiful 
in a beautiful way with ropes and then rolled it along the ground and then put it in the river and it was great I mean, basically, the only people that expressed any support of it were really far-right batshit lunatics and the Tory cabinet, which is the two of the same things. Um, are statues history, and what do they mean, and do we need them? And also, what happens if we get rid of all the really pure evil ones? What happens when it comes to more divisive figures who, nevertheless, are very important to people? Churchill. Yeah, they care about Churchill, and they care. you couldn't get rid of Thatcher. We've and- got one of Queen Victoria... Yeah, so Queen Victoria is a very complex, divisive character, but incredibly important to Britain's history. But do we need a statue of her? Do we need a statue of Queen Victoria? We all know who she is. We're not going to forget her. But if you go down that route, we're going to be getting rid of a lot of statues. But that's something different. Yeah, for like time. people of another political view from me, like right wing people could say, well, let's get rid of Clement Attlee. Or let's get rid of Nelson Mandela. He was a terrorist. Well, there's a petition about Nelson's Nelson's column as we speak. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, so that's a huge iconic thing. What do you think, Rifa? What do I think? Yeah, I've just spoken for ages. I don't think people even look after the statues properly. So people who are getting upset about the statues walk past them and they don't see them at all. Yes, there are things part of British history that are probably worth commemorating. But if we're going to have a load of these sort of icons that are celebrating these slave owners, I mean, the Tate itself is built on the backs of slavery, sugar industry. We can't tear everything down, but maybe what we could do is have a memorial or a commemorative thing to do with slavery in these towns in the UK and acknowledge that we had not we, the British economy and the British whole point of Britain itself was because of colonisation. So if we could just educate people in schools, educate people in everywhere, talk about this a bit more openly and understand that our whole system, political system, education system and everything in between, which got shipped out to countries all around the world, that's called colonialism, then maybe we should start talking more about that. And it's less about statues, but it's bringing awareness. I saw on Get Kate Wear Cape's um, Facebook page that he was talking about it. There were fans of his that had to go and Google what the word colonial meant, which, as far as I'm concerned, is a win. You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yes, you know, I remember having a conversation with a grown-up person who didn't know what apartheid was. This is recent history that when I talk about it with certain people, they think I'm making it up that in the 80s there was a country in Africa where people were oppressed in their own countries and uh, let alone American heritage and uh, history. So what I would suggest watching 13th, which again, when when it came out in 2016 and I tried to have conversations about it with white friends, they will get upset with me and try and make up stories about whether their one black friend would think that that was extreme. The correlation between how black men in particular or black people are incarcerated in the States is a direct result of slavery. Watch the freaking film. It's on Netflix. You know, people need to start waking up to this. You know, the rest of us have been waiting for everybody else to catch up for some time now. Well, even the statue of Edward Colston the act of removing it will have educated thousands of people about slavery who knew nothing about it just because everyone's talking about it finally. We reviewed the Kara Walker piece 
Fons Americanus at the Tate. And you said at the time it was really interesting that they are very proudly trumpeting this kind of um, reaction and response to colonialism from an American artist in the Turbine Hall, which is all well and good, but it was still in the Tate. And no one's mentioned renaming the Tate. No, but that's that's another level of stuff, right? And yeah. so about, I would say, in early 2000s, I'll have to look it up, probably on YouTube, listener, go on YouTube and Google Benjamin Zephaniah's BBC programme that he did about colonialism and about how we don't have a memorial to the slaves. I tweeted about this recently. In New York, they found a whole burial ground and about 400 bodies of slaves when they were excavating to try and um, put another fucking skyscraper near Trump Towers in the financial districts of New York. There was a massive fight in the 90s about what they would do with those remains. In the end, they did the right thing, I think, and made this amazing burial ground called the African Memorial Ground. And it's beautiful, and it's you walk round it, and it's physically a statue, and it's a very peaceful place in the middle of that financial district bit. And you can go down into it and walk around it, and, you know, it's really moving. So we don't have anything in this country, so all of that history is buried but there's some really interesting resources you can look at as well which is like the black cultural archives in london and black history walks patrick vernon is this great uh, propagator of this information he started off doing walks literally around london so teenagers and school kids could learn about their heritage on the weekends and then he does talks as well if anyone really wanted to know anything we have all been educating ourselves and you lot can all educate yourselves now which is great brings me on to what we're reading isn't it <laughs> what are you reading for 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 so can i do it do it or do you want to go first uh yeah you go first what are you reading? I've been Reefer? reading a lot of blog posts and yeah, a lot of articles. Yeah. <laughs> um, very quickly, I think it was the f- first day of the first week of all this stuff going on. Um, our friend, Citizen Helene, she put together a nice little list of five things that you could do. And I've put that on my site of places you can donate to. But also, just recently, there was a post that went round and I've reposted it on my Facebook with all the things that have happened because of the protests, you know. So that's what I've been reading. But one of the things that you can read, dear reader, is Tatiana Mack's blogs about anti-racism guides with lists of actions and reading material. Tatiana Mack is a a coder and she set up a thing called Devs of Colour, a database that prioritises undiscovered black and brown talent. She's basically a coder that's got a very high profile so she's worth following on twitter as well tatiana mack but her blogs are really interesting reads as well if you go to tatiana mack's website tatianamack.com and look at her posts you'll find the white guide and save the tears are two of the anti-racism guides that she helps with a list of actions and reading material for white men and women and non-black people of color too like basically we all need to step up and that means that just because you're a person of colour, are you Asian or mixed, you may not understand either what it's like to be a black person at the moment in any country. What have you been reading, Chris? Another small poetry-related book for me. 
I was in this whole conversation about the rhythms of poetry when it's spoken aloud. I can't remember why, but I was talking about syllables and things going over lines and stuff. And I'm reading and writing lots of verse at the moment. And my sister Felicity jumped in, said, oh, I'm going to send you this book, which was very kind of her. So she did. And it's Robert Pinsky, a book called The Sounds of Poetry. It's quite a small book. Basically, it's about the rhythm and the weight and the beat and all of that stuff uh, when you write poetry. Uh, there's a lovely word, the trocky bits, the trochaic foot, which is when the emphasis comes if you've got a word with several syllables. It's, it's really funny. It's a very heartening book because I don't know any of these rules, but because I wrote songs for years, I find it's very intuitive. It fits. Like poems are nothing like songs, but the bit that they've got in common is rhythm. And if you write songs, you're very aware, without the without the necessarily the language of the poetry world, you're very aware of how the rhythm is going to sound when you sing the song. And you're very aware of all these tricks that singers use. Pronouncing things is a big part of that. So it's a really interesting book. I'm, I'm loving it, actually. Um, Robert Pinsky, The Sounds of Poetry. And that's our show. Slightly fraught. We will talk to you in a week or two. Cheerio. Please stay safe and look after yourselves and each other. There's a, a number of Black Lives Matter marches happening and demos. Stay safe. Thank you for your service.